Jesus Christ, Doc, you disintegrated Einstein. Disintegrated Einstein. Einstein. Welcome to Science at the Movies, a podcast that looks at the role of science in some of our best loved and most hated movies. I'm Frida. And I'm Abby, and this week's movie is Arrival. And for those of you that don't have a visual depiction of what's going on, I don't know what the fuck Frida was just doing. <laughs> what was with that animation? <laughs> oh, now I'm too animated? Sorry. <laughs> It's like you're suddenly on a kids show. You're suddenly one of those um those Australian hosts. You know the the 40-year-olds who who do kids shows. Hey kids. Yeah, I was trying to emphasize. Guess what we're talking yeah, no, I, about today. <laughs> I was working on my word emphasis by being like, oh, okay. I did it. Did it, did it. Shut up. Okay? I'm coming off two weddings <laughs> that were on at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> She's a sorry, wedding jumper. I'm sorry, I, I sound terrible. So luckily, it's not my episode. It's your episode. Yeah. Off you go. <laughs> <I know. laughs> um, thank you. Well, before we get into it, as usual, what um, what science news do you have for us, or life news that you want to talk about? I got accepted into that conference in Germany <gasps> with a caveat. Okay. Wait, no, e poster e-poster which means i don't actually have to go it's an electronic poster so i don't have to be there so now i have to beg and plead if i can still go or find my own funding so stay tuned because i mean being there in person is more important because you can make better connections and have better um but then that requires people to care about you making connections and collaborators that well the first bit of what you just said would, is going to be very useful for when i apply for funding but the powers that be might not agree like but that sounds like a very good idea to tell the funding bodies so i'll use that yeah yeah how about you i have had my whole month of firsts i've been at three conferences in one month i'm very tired Wow. <laughs> um, so I had my first in-person conference in Portugal, in the Algarve. So five days, which sounds amazing for sure, but it was also a five-day packed, packed full of talks. I've never sat in a room with so many fucking talks. I was exhausted by the end of it. Uh, but I did my first poster presentation and then hey. I got back from Portugal and we missed our flight. So that was very stressful. We finally got another flight back um, and the next day I went to Liverpool for my first uh, collaboration meeting with all of our um, UK collaborators, which again was like really cool. It was so awesome. It was just another day full of talks, but like it was awesome to meet everyone and to meet the people that I am going to be working with a bit more and make kind of connections that way. And then I came back from Liverpool on the Friday night and then I had the weekend to put together my first talk for our um then we had like another conference on monday and tuesday this week and i gave my first ever talk on monday afternoon and i honest to god nearly vomited right before it ah oh, i thought you said <laughs> during it 
I was standing at the side as they were questioning the guy who was on before me. And I was like, I'm next, I'm next, I'm next. And I was looking at the clock and I was looking at the questions and they just kept asking him questions. And there was a moment where I just like, like a little bit of throw up, you know, (laughs) a little bit of throw up. And I was like, oh my God, I'm actually going to miss my talk because I'm going to have to run out of the room to vomit with the fucking fear level. Also, like, I don't know why, but the screen was the biggest projection screen I have ever seen in my fucking life. I was like, why are my slides so huge? Like, why is everything so enormous next to me? (laughs) Like, terrified, just going, oh my God, everything's really big and everyone's looking at me, I hate it. But I will say at the end of my talk, My supervisor was in the second row right in front of me and he was looking at me the whole time and he was kind of giving me like encouraging kind of looks. And as I walked, as I finished my talk, I walked towards him because my stuff was on the chair right in front of him and he gave me a thumbs up and was like, you did good. And I was like, yes. (laughs) So yeah, it was good. Yeah. When I gave that talk in, uh, that sounds when I gave the talk in my first conference talk and there was a live chat. Like every session it was set up had a live chat. People could submit yeah. questions. And my boss was like in the chat. He was like on fire, Frida. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. In the chat. So yeah. So that was it. I am. Um, so good. Con- I didn't realize how exhausting conferences are though. Like. Well, it like- depends what you compare it to. I, I, I loved it because I didn't have anything else to do but the conference. It meant I had a bit of extra time that I usually have. Well, I think it's more just like, maybe it's because I'm so new to the area that it's like, I think a lot of people who know what you're looking for uh, find it easier to just kind of pick talks that they want to go to or, you know, not not worry about having to understand everything. Whereas for me, it was more like, I need to try to figure out what's relevant to me and what's not. So I just found like having to focus on that many talks. Like in Portugal, that conference, it was three invited speakers in the morning a coffee break for other speakers, lunch break, back for four speakers, coffee break, back for four speakers, end of session. But then end of session is like the reception and then the poster session. And I think like for me as well, it's just like, it's a lot of social interaction that I haven't had in a long time. So to do that much social interaction with complete strangers, all centered around science, for three weeks in a row a was just like what is happening and traveling as well so it was like it just like when we got like i missed our flight back from portugal and then when we were coming back from liverpool um there was train strikes and uh and a problem on the track so we couldn't get out of liverpool until like really late as well so just things like that you're just like you get back and you're like i'm really tired now <laughs> honestly but it was really cool and exciting. And I feel like a, a proper member of the scientific community. I contributed. I had a poster. I gave a talk. I'm a contributor. Yeah. I have to say, it sounds like your academic career is well underway. Yeah. Would you say? It, it was really nice. It, it, it felt really good. It felt like, okay, cool. We're, we're, on, we're on the path now. So yeah, uh, that's all I've got. Um, do you want to get into the movie? Okay. Cool. Yeah, let's um, go. I forgot to write a summary, but you know. What? I thought you did it. Well, yeah, before you. I said to you this morning that I realized I forgot to write a summary and then I was trying to get the room ready and get set up and then I forgot and I said, oh, I'll do it while we're in the break between doing the other episode and then I didn't because I made coffee. 
<laughs> I so said I was gonna do it. That's true, story. but I didn't. Yes, that's naughty that Abby. Naughty Abby. <laughs> I can do a summary of the movie. Come on, we've all seen Arrival. It's an excellent movie. Okay, here's my off the cuff summary. I hated it. Shut just up. joking. No, you didn't. I just wanted to stir up controversy on sides at <laughs> the movies. I'm sure we can find another movie to do that with, Frida. <laughs> um, okay, so what happens when aliens come calling? Dr. Louise Banks, a linguist, and Dr. Ian Donnelly, a theoretical physicist, have this moment in their lives that they will never, ever forget. The first day that they are pulled together and put face to face with aliens. Their task, figure out what they want. Simple enough, except when we realise that language barriers exist. How could we possibly determine what an alien species is trying to say to us? In order to understand language, you have to have some sort of common ground. What could you, what could be our common ground with an alien species? This story is a beautiful depiction of how we envision the world around us based on the language that we use and how our perceptions of the world can change when we meet visitors from another world. Arrival. Very good. Thank you. I winged good. it. <laughs> Don't laugh like you've never winged it before when we've done a summary. All right. Okay. Arrival. Frida. Thoughts, general thoughts and feelings on this movie. Arrival is so original. That's what I love most about it. It's just like a completely original telling of the story. And there's so many layers and so much meaning and it really sticks in your head and you like think about it a lot. Like what does it all mean? And the fact that they're using language as the tool to, as the, as the language to explore aliens visiting, they're using linguistics to mm. say something about us and our Failure to understand things, uh, our failure to communicate with one another, and how important that is, and how vital that is to the sort of general health and well-being of the planet. It's so powerful, but it's also just so different. Everything about it yes. is so different, and I just love this movie. It's amazing, isn't it? How like you just need someone to come along and say, "Hey." You know that thing we always ignore in space movies and alien movies where you either just have it that there's no attempt at communication or there's a universal translator and everyone just understands everyone else or you put a babble fish in your ear and it's fine. And it's just like, it's a plot point that you just kind of jump over. It's like, let's skip over that and let's just have everyone be able to communicate. And it's just such a wonderful way to go, no, that, that could be an interesting story to tell in itself of how would you... How would you create understanding? How would you communicate? Um, this is like, I, I adore this movie so much. And it, it there's something about the feeling and the, I find it like, it's captivating. Like That's the only way I can describe it. It's one of those movies that when I go back for this podcast and, I, and we pick a movie and I'm like, okay, I'm going to rewatch that and um, pick out the science that I want to talk about. I end up sitting there watching it and a lot of the time I'm not really paying too much attention because I'm like, oh, I've seen the movie before. Arrival is just one of the few ones where it's like, I'm just, I'm glued to the screen the whole way through. It's hard to yeah. write down notes about it because it's like, I don't want to look away because it really does just keep you wrapped, wrapped to the screen. 
I think. Every shot is gorgeous. Every Mm. shot is gorgeous. Every shot they show you, I could just sit in the shot and stare at it. Uh, It's so beautiful. And it's so many movies that are great and people are obsessed with them actually don't have this visual element at all where everything you look at is just gorgeous. And Dennis Villeneuve is just one of those people that fucking knows how to make everything beautiful so that you just want to sit in the movie for as long as you can. That's what I, that's what, that's what I wanted to say because, um, uh, I I don't know how to pronounce his surname. I was going with uh, Denis Villeneuve because he's French. Villeneuve. Uh, Yeah. I made it up. Uh, he is, he is my favorite director right now. And I say right now because he is one of these directors who he doesn't just pump out movies. He's very measured with how long he takes in creating a movie. So Arrival is exceptional. And then, you know, then we had Blade Runner 2049. Dune is so incredible and it's such an incredible depiction of of the of the book it's so beautifully done that like i want more from him but i don't want him to like rush just to give us more content it's like i just i can't wait to see what more he brings us as a director like because i just think each movie has had that same feel like you said it's the same with blade runner 2049 you just every shot was just beautiful to look at it had the entire movie had a feeling around it and arrival is the same it has a feeling that you get when you watch it um yeah yeah it's and also a feeling that you can trust the director yeah when you know you can trust him and you can sit back and just let yourself receive the film because you know that he's going to take you to the right place yeah and there's, that's the feeling with Arrival is that you can really sit back and, and enjoy. Yeah. So I don't really have much else that I want to talk about the movie in particular before we get into themes and everything else. But I have a no doubt that you have some other things that you would like to talk about. So <laughs> do you want to? Um, well, I have I a couple of. I bring up the uh, music, but uh, what else have you got? Uh, the cast. Oh yeah, I forgot to write down the cast. Holy shit, what is wrong with me? Sorry, I'm I'm very What's tired. Wrong with like you? I said, are we going to discuss them in the scientist mate? Three scientist section. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I obviously have Louise and Ian down in the scientist section, but if there's anyone else that you want to talk about, I've got a little bit I want to say about um, the general character as well, um, Whitaker. Michael Stahlberg, oh. The actor that doesn't play the top guy. No, the, the the general guy, there's the general guy, but there's the guy that's kind of managing them, and he's played by Michael Stahlberg. I just love Michael Stahlberg. He's great okay. in everything he does. How do I... Uh, yeah, music is... There is something I want to say about music because the person who scored it... Let me get the name because... It I suppose is I've just realized, actually, what, Johan, while you're Johansson doing that... Or something like that. I have, sorry, just before you get into the music stuff, just thinking about the cast. Yeah, I suppose the reason I didn't really write down because it's like, it's, I never really thought about it, but it's not an enormous cast. Like there's lots of people around, but in terms of the characters in the story, it's our two scientists. It's um, uh, Forrest Whitaker's character. 
and the oh yeah the Michael Stalberg character yeah I remember I remember him now um, yeah and yeah I like and, there's the few other and, the and there's the things yeah there's things that um, oh yes oh what's that That's actor's it. name again I always really like him uh, sorry I'm just trying to find the cast oh Zima is his name General Shang yeah, really yeah like it's him. very focused. It's very, yeah. very focused on the two of them. And the only time they bring in another person in any way, it's because they're going to use them. For example, the soldier is brought in when you overhear a conversation with him yeah. and his wife where you clearly see this guy's desperate to go home and then you see him later plotting, Yeah, you know, to blow everything up. So it's all very deliberate. They focus the story heavily on this is a tale about these two people. Yes, there's a lot of other stuff, but watch very closely everything that these two people do. It's similar to Fly, the best movie. (laughs) It's highly focused. It's very good script script writing. We need someone to go back through our movies and see how many times has Frida managed to bring the fly up. (laughs) It's a drinking game. Yeah. All right. Sorry. Talk about the music, please. Sorry, I'm just having a little trouble connecting. Okay, so the music, there's a soundtrack, which is phenomenal. The soundtrack is completely original and it's so amazing. But then the music, The Daylight, it's, it's by uh, Max Richter. It's a very famous, a super overused song. Super overused song. And okay. I just want to say, because no one gives a shit what my opinions are anyway, so I could just stay them, is that Mike, Max Richter is so bloody overblown. I'm so tired of Max Richter. But he does have this one good song. <laughs> daylight and everybody plays it all the time and it's always in movies and i'm bored to death of that guy i just wanted to say that but the guy who does the the actual scored it i'm so bored of max richter he's just a philip glass like derivative it's insane a plus a cello (laughs) you know and it's like whatever but anyway um okay (laughs) the soundtrack is really cool though i I love i love how it's creepy i love all the cool whispery stuff i love the music when they go in there it adds like it really adds such a cool element to it um so yeah i loved it yeah i think like um i'm sure like not to take away from the people that he puts around him Denis villeneuve like in terms of like cinematographers um uh, and you know sound design people and composers and all that kind of stuff but i do think that he is very very good at setting a environment including the sound as well as the visuals in in terms of helping us kind of feel everything around us i think it's really cool so yeah i agree with you i think yeah. the music is amazing all right shall we talk about the, t- the 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 themes what the themes of the movie i have i have oh sorry go on I have just one thing. I couldn't fit it anywhere because it's not a trope. Um, yeah, go on. But I just wanted to point out a, a part of the movie that made me cackle. Can I just say it? Yeah, of course. It was when the mathematician was like, so they're responding. No, it's, um, sorry, no, it's, it's Jeremy Renner's character. He's like, so they're responding to anything. They're responding to like the Fibonacci sequence. And I was like, you wish you dork. It's like a mathematician's wet dream that they finally like, so is it, was it the Fibonacci sequence? Was that the thing that they were like responding to? And I was like, Doc, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. How could you, what do you mean you know where to fit that in? We're going to talk about his whole character in a minute. Oh, damn it. 
Okay, never mind. I'm, I don't know how I'm gonna get through this episode, Abby. I know. You don't know. I can't breathe broken. through my nose. I am broken. It's very it's okay. hard. We're get through Every it. time I open my mouth to talk, I have to hold my breath <laughs> because I can't breathe through my nose, and so I have to like talk like this, uh, and then I. <laughs> For those so of you who are going. not aware, Frida's very, very hungover right now. Okay. I feel like this has happened. Uh, the, what was the other one? Where, when you were... <laughs> it was were the head's your, party of this wedding. Were you, were you wearing, weren't you wearing your big, like, fluff coat as well? <laughs> you just look like... <laughs> anyway. All right. Let's I'm talk about mess. the themes of this movie. Um, this movie is quite... Like, there's a lot of serious stuff going on here. So uh, we're going to... The way I've structured talking about the science in this movie in general is going to be more, um, we're going to have more kind of conversational stuff around it because we're talking about linguistics and things like that. But in terms of the themes of this movie, um, there first appears to be like a personal theme about loss and choices. If you knew the outcome, would you make the same choice? But really from a science perspective, we're talking about our perception of time. Now, because we perceive time as one directional and the arrow moves towards our eventual demise, the choice she is presented with is due to evolving the ability to see time in a different way. The events of her life are no longer linear and because of this, she seems to make a decision to experience the joy even knowing that it will end in pain. And this is expressed more when she tells Hannah that Ian told her she made the wrong choice. But in reality... Did she even have a choice? Because are we actually exploring questions around free will? Does she know what might happen in the future? Or is she calm and accepting of it because she knows what will happen in the future? Could she have changed it? Made a different choice? Like the scene with the general and the phone number implies not. It implies that what needs to happen will happen and she cannot change that outcome. And as much as she cannot change the outcome for her daughter. So how do you feel about this? About the theme of the movie or what I'm talking about in terms of like free will, knowing the future, making these choices? So I have a couple of ideas of other themes in the movie. I think it's full of themes, but on exactly your point. Yeah, I was, I was just trying I to think, bring it more towards the yeah. science ones because I was like, <laughs> what, can, yeah. what can I bring in here? But yeah, sorry, continue. Yeah, so what I think about that is... I think it's a metaphor for life and the decision to live knowing, yes, we don't have the gift of future sight, but we know something bad is going to happen in our lives. Hmm. Right? Yes. And we have to make a choice to live anyway, knowing that we will suffer. Yes. And I think that is sort of what the movie is about, is that she, and it's this incredibly clever way it does it because it sort of tells the narrative in a way that you don't realise what you're looking at. She is just asleep through life. She really is. She doesn't even react to the aliens landing. She's not really living. Yeah. Um, She's not really living. And then she's given a sort of an opportunity to choose to live or to not live. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So she makes the decision, I choose to live. I choose life. And I think that's really the path is her realizing that she can't live in fear and she has to actually live in the same way that we are faced with that choice, knowing we will suffer to choose to actually take risks and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a fair point. 
Okay, so did you want to talk about some other themes relating to it? Um, okay, go on. Yeah, then. I know she's been well. Dying I to think talk that about the all the themes. <laughs> it's me trying to skip past it all. Der- <laughs> derision. No, I just want to say the theme of language and communication and understanding each other. Mm-hmm. And failing to understand. But I also think there is a weird metaphor here for watching film. Like we're watching them on a screen. It's a screen. Yeah. I think there's something about film itself and the visual media. But you know how we're trying to talk to them. In the end she's like, no, no, they're visual. Um, yeah. And she shows them the words and then they, you know, they communicate through a screen. Almost like they're, we're watching each other on TV or on film. Okay. And so I felt like th- there was actually something big, heavy about film as a yeah. as a medium as well and I, and I won't go in further than that but I think it was actually saying something about film okay watching watching I don't yeah, know no, that's I all. take that and like yeah of course there's the whole you're so right of course there's the whole like communication and language theme and everything but we're going to talk about that quite a lot in science so all right let's, let's go move into tropes then do you have a trope that you picked out I've got one I have two. Ooh, go on Okay, so the first one, now that's an introduction. <laughs> I don't even remember like that. Like that was, you know, yeah, well, when they put the hand there, when she puts her hand oh, on yeah, the screen, yeah. that even is tropey, putting your hand on a screen and then they're like, that's my hand. And she goes, now that's an introduction. <laughs> I was like, okay, you can do better than that, guys. This movie's so good. That was tropey. Uh, what was your other one science flirts <laughs> science flirting <laughs> it was happening the whole way yeah. but when they were sitting on the thing the first thing he was like la di da di da da and she was like la di da she was like yeah. blah 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 I wrote that <laughs> science flirting is science the best flirting, flirting. <laughs> Oh, yeah, she true. rolled her eyes for those that cannot see. Okay, my trope no, is... No, I roll um... my eyes and then I realized how guilty I am. Yeah, I know. How many times have you told us about how you're science flirting in this? So don't you, don't you fucking try to act all like, oh, it's so tropey now. Little miss out there doing the, uh, the Jurassic Park water on the hand trick. We know. You said you told us you've done it. <laughs> All right. Guilty okay. as charged. All right. My my trope is um, how do we make Jeremy Renner look like a physicist? Give him glasses. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I just love it. It's like, it's like, ooh, he has to be a nerdy physicist. It's Hawkeye, but he's got glasses. So he's now a scientist. He's a nerd. Well, like he's just not being typecast. I think that's good. Hey, I'm it's not a complaining good about it. I'm just laughing at it. It's like, how do you okay. make someone look like a scientist? Give them glasses. Well, it's true. People laughing. read a lot. They get myopia. That is science. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Let's get into this then. Let's get into our scientists as I'm, as I'm laughing at it. We've got Dr. Louise Banks, played by Amy Adams, who is a linguist. Um, and we have Dr. Ian Donnelly, played by Jeremy Redder, who is a theoretical physicist. 
They so Amy Adams is uh, she's done translations for the army before. I like how they dropped that in. Like they were like, oh, she still got this top secret clearance due to the Farsi translations. I think that that was done in such a nice way where it was just kind of like, hey, you know, this is this is why we're coming to you because it's easy because, you know, you're already cleared. Um, how do we feel? How do you feel about our Louise Banks and Ian Donnelly, our linguist and our physicist? I think Louise Banks's character is drawn so well. It's so subtle. Amy Adams, due to her performance. Mm-hmm. But the example that you gave me, those little bits of exposition, which are done really smoothly, the exposition with her character is so subtle. You, yeah. get, you get little tiny things from the phone call to her mum, from the fact that she's like, can I have 20 minutes? And like, we'll give you 10 minutes or whatever. These little ways where her character is very, very well drawn up. Yeah. And I, I think it's a... I think her character is, uh, is is triumphant. It's really well done. Do you agree? Yeah. No, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. And I like her calmness as well. You know? Yeah. I like her. I like what you said about this, that she's actually just kind of like floating through life or she's like sleeping through it, that she doesn't really react to the aliens landing. She, you know... She just kind of seems to be a little bit oblivious to it. But then also I think she kind of maybe has a reaction that maybe quite a few people would have that we don't really think about. We think about it being so fantastical, but I guess there'd be a lot of us that would just continue on with our daily lives because it'd be like, well, until someone tells me what's going on, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. And there's there's people that will just do that. Yeah, until the state gives us an alien's day off. Yeah. <laughs> then I guess I'll just go to work. <laughs> um, how do you feel about uh, Jeremy Renner as Ian Donnelly? I really like him. I th- I really like him too. I think he's just a normal guy. Yeah. Like they don't try to pump up too much anything about him just because he's a physicist. He just seems kind of normal. He's mm-hmm. de- You can see he's definitely used to being the smartest person in the room, but he very he's very easy to defer to Louise. Yeah. And I really like that about them, that it doesn't take it. There's not a whole lot of like struggle about like listening to a woman or, you know, be struggling not to be the boss. Like, I just love that they don't make such a big fuss over it. There's yes. a small amount of tension, but very quickly he just respects her so much. He just looks up to her and respects her. Yeah. that, that, that That's the thing. Exactly. I think it's really lovely. Don't like they when they arrive they have their two separate teams they're you know they're not in competition with each other they're not um you know not like as you said it's not like one of them is the boss or anything like that they just they go they've got a job to do they respect each other and i like that with jeremy render's character while they have him there they didn't turn him into a soldier which is what always fucking happens in these types of movie you know he's like the nerdy scientist but then he becomes the action hero like it wasn't about that he was never totally. the action hero he was never you know like there was nothing and, and i do enjoy as well like he was she was more kind of she was afraid she was very clearly afraid uh particularly in the beginning because of course you would and he was in awe do you know, like the first moment when they like all the like the way that they filmed everything that first time when they go into the ship, like her breathing, oh. trying to control herself, them like having to pull her up. Oh. And he's just like delayed because he's like, this is fucking insane. Do you know, I felt like that was a good depiction of 
of what what you know i do believe a physicist faced with that would be like this is insanely amazing and i do believe that you know she she doesn't spend her life looking and trying to learn and envisioning what what might be out there you know she's she's focused on communication in you know in the here and now all the time so yeah i don't know i just i just thought that i thought that they I were agree. very well balanced a scientist would want to step out and see what is, what is this yeah like you'd ha- you have to like this is a gravitational thing that yeah. they've manipulated so he's like, I, what the fuck? Where she's just terrified. And yeah, and it also just fit into what, everything that we've seen from her character just yeah. fits. That's when a movie is so good when those moments are completely won over by the really, really careful character building and every scene seems to fit a purpose and give you more about the character to push the story along and nothing is there just for like, just for the sake of entertainment it all it's very entertaining but it's also there as part of the story that i just i also love how quickly it happened they're like in you come all right let's go 15 minutes boom 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 and they walk through and you're and it's revealed to you as they're going through oh oh this is happening they've set this up it's an army tense boom 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 aliens hell yeah it doesn't waste any time yes exactly um so yeah, they they are. Uh, is there anyone else in the cast that you want to talk about? I mean, well, there are two no. scientists. There's no. Yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, we'll talk a little bit about Forrest Whitaker char- Whitaker's character a little bit in a, in a while. So before that, I do before we get into uh, the first science section. Um, there's a line where they talk about language versus science as the cornerstone of civilization. It's kind of a disagreement that they they seem to have. And I find that like when they said that, my immediate reaction was that language is the cornerstone and science is the foundation. How do you feel about our connection between language and science? I found that whole conversation a bit silly because I'm from science and therefore I have to believe it's the foundation. I'm from linguistics, therefore I have to believe it's the foundation. Which one is it? This one or this one? I think science is a tool that we use in order to understand more about the world and therefore push foundation along. But I think civilization definitely comes from people getting together in groups with shared beliefs, i.e. storytelling, that we have apart from animals. It's what makes us different to animals is that we have the ability to tell stories and believe stories and form beliefs. And that's how we make groups. Whether that's shared beliefs about what kind of civilization we should have, like communism, that's a belief that we tell each other, we build a civilization on that, or some other belief system. So I kind of do think that communication and storytelling, which I guess is linguistics. Yeah. Yeah, I would think stories so. Stories is the is well, the foundation. So we're so let's yeah. So it, I find it's going to be quite interesting the the connection between language and science or how we kind of view it. But before we get there, let's start with the arrival, because what we have is 12 alien ships arrive on Earth at 12 different locations. Now, there is a question about why they did that, but I I find this really interesting because it turns out that the United Nations don't actually have a protocol at all for what we would do in the event of an alien visitor. It's very much within their room where it's just down to whatever country they land in. So, like, if aliens okay. came and they went to, like, landed in a country, it, it, 
there is no like United Nations protocol for it. It's just a case of what would that country do? And then if that country were like, hey, could you guys like come and, you know, help deal with this? Then the United Nations would step in. But uh, we still like, I guess because it seems so unrealistic that it would ever happen, we don't have an actual protocol for it. So I did find it interesting how within the movie they used the, it as a vehicle for choosing 12 locations as a way to, and breaking up the message into 12 parts, as a way to enforce humanity to work together and act as a community. Quite the contrast to District 9 was this movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, and I really loved the way it was depicted because in District 9, it's like South Africa... Sorry, Mike. In District 9, it's like South Africa's problem and South Africa deals with it in a South Africa way, mirroring basically their apartheid um, and their multinational blah, blah, blah. But in this one, yeah, we totally have all these countries coming together under which umbrella I'm not sure I think it's more like they 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 seem like they're choosing to communicate and share information yeah. and I absolutely love the way that they show that I love the way they're having chit chats over zoom or whatever it is yeah. I love the way they show that and you see different countries trying different things and sharing information I think it's one real strength of one it was like a really really strong part of the film I think is the way that they didn't make a fuss over that they didn't have the typical we're in Saudi Arabia, now we're yeah. in here, now we're there. It's just different places, different scientists. And also when they arrived, <laughs> by the way, I was sitting there with an Australian friend watching and we're watching them all drop on the countries. They were like, no, Australia. And then there was one in Australia, but it was like in Perth. <laughs> we were like, Perth? Because it was like, there seems to be no real reason that they're landing in any of these places and it's in Perth. They were like, yeah, Perth. <laughs> Why would it be in Western Australia? So it's like happens to be these Perth scientists are just like, <laughs> and I love that because it, because it was in these random places and not like London, Paris. It just yeah. meant none of that shit. Just regular people that were stuck with the job of trying to figure it out. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the, and and it's so true. Like you had that scene, and you saw all the visuals, and it was just like you know the the country's name, like on each each little screen of each person, and and everyone just trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. And when it all starts at the beginning, and they arrive, and everyone's kind of having that reaction. You know, she goes into her classroom, and she opens, and they're like, "Oh, can you turn the news on?" There's only like what five people in there. She's like, "What the fuck is going on?" They turn the news on, and everything. But. Uh, there is a scene following that that to me is like really so like a, like a whole um, predictor of the pandemic because she goes to the ca like after it all happens at the beginning, she still goes to work. She goes to campus to go to work and there's like nobody there. It's completely empty. And she turns on the news and they're talking about grounding flights and panic buying and just this... Uh, like this uh, complete like the human response to something like this happening and I found it really interesting because I, I just I guess there's like an element of a universal response that humans have when we're faced with something that we can't immediately control people go into panic and they start like trying to like go towards things that they can control such as like buying loads of shit um, and then there was a lot of stuff that they continued to show then, like with the looting and the mass suicides. And it just kind of made me realize like we're really fragile as a species and we're not good at like just keeping it cool. So 
<laughs> I, I felt like the the depiction of of our reaction to something like this happening. Do do you think that that's realistic? Like, do you think that that that's showing everything that would happen if if suddenly twelve alien spaceships turned up today? Do you think all that stuff would happen? Yeah. 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 I mean, we. I mean, it is what happened. I think people. Some people look for the opportunity to create chaos and to live out their big post-apocalyptic dreams and, you know, people will want to act like that anyway and some people will just want to wait for instruction. Yeah. And that's what we saw during COVID. So, yeah, I agree. So uh, as we kind of go through it, we have we have the, the reactions of um, the people who are directly connected to it. We have the, the human response out there, people who aren't in control, who don't really understand what's going on and, and the panic and the fear that they feel. And then we see how that fear and that panic starts to like infiltrate into the, the, the community or the connection that everyone has. Uh, that's the wrong word. But basically I'm thinking about like how we get to that point where like we do that classic thing where everyone just disconnects from each other and stops talking. They all just go like no, yeah, and then and then all the screens go blank, and everyone's just gone. Yeah, and it's like that first reaction of like, well, they've disconnected. So, should we continue to communicate with each other? And it's like no, every blackout, and and that's terrifying as well. That like we can all yeah. allow our fears to get us to that point where we stop communicating and can lead to put something potentially really destructive. And it's a very interesting analogy to the aliens, actually, because when, you, when they use the screen as the medium, it's very fragile because all they have to do is go dark. And then there's no there's no way to communicate because they're using that screen between them as as the way to communicate. And so, yeah, it is kind of terrifying. What, what, hey, what was that movie where there was a Zoom call and with the army generals? Oh, was it Geostorm? No. And oh. everybody walks out. And she's just stuck in the Zoom by herself going, why'd you walk out? Instead of, instead of disconnecting the call, it, it was Moonfall. Oh, moonfall. <laughs> yeah, but it was so like everyone just walked out of the room. And so she yeah. was just on the screen being like, where is everyone? Yeah. <laughs> that didn't make the, – the disconnection is – it's so much more brutal. Yeah. It, yeah, it's – it kind of makes you start to feel fear because you, you immediately just don't know what's going on on the other side. When we can't communicate with each other, when we can't see each other, when, and I th and we all have this feeling, we've all had this, like, and, I, and we don't even have to have it be on the large scale of, of an alien movie or, you know, a life-threatening, terrifying out, like, um, event happening. But even just, you know, when you're having like an argument with someone and you can't get them on the phone and you just like, you just, you don't know, you don't know what the other person is thinking. You don't know what actions they're going to take. And as soon as we stop communicating with each other, as soon as we don't know what the other person is going to do, we really lose, uh, an, uh, lose that ability to remain calm and rational because... It, it kind of comes into game theory a little bit, um, what we talked about when we did Doctor Strangelove. Remember we were talking about how you're trying to, you are then trying to decide on an action to take based on what you think the other person's action will be, but also on the understanding that they will take action based on what they think your 
action is going to be. Yeah. It's it's a very, very kind of, it becomes yeah. this very confusing sequence of events as to how to predict what the outcome will be um, and what the correct course of action is. Um, so yeah, I found that I found that part of the movie quite terrifying when they just went dark, no communication. It was fascinating. Yeah. It was absolutely fascinating for a movie about language and about communication, talking about the ways that we choose to communicate with each other and why those things are dysfunctional and also the, the, the dysfunctional way that we interpret each other's and how interpretation is important and having having language and, and, and the way she explains, no, we, these are, there are so many ways to misunderstand one another. So first mm. you have to understand another person before you can start to dialogue. And while you were saying that, I was thinking the way people do that as well, how dysfunctional people are communicating in, the, in a courtship. That yep. you act out of anticipation of what the other person might do. Yes. Instead of just communicating directly. Yeah. Like, what do you think of this? You anticipate it and then act to counter that. It's... It's yeah. very normal and very human. That's that kind of brings cool. a little bit to I want uh, if I can remember to come back to that because I I actually almost think that that might come into the Sapir Wharf stuff a bit later. Okay, so let's talk about the aliens for a minute then because I don't want to get too much into the aliens, but I did just think that it was a really cool depiction of intelligent alien life because the thing is there's absolutely nothing to say that life would have to form into a humanoid shape. Like, we see plenty of evidence of non-humanoid life in our own planet that has evolved over time. So, like, the idea that normally in sci-fi, when the intelligent aliens come, they're kind of just like us, but they're smarter and they're all futuristic. I love that it's just a completely random fucking life form. There is no... There is nothing about these heptopods that is anything that we know or that we can look at it and go like, yeah, that's how we envision life would form on another planet. It's just so completely random, but also so complete. Like there is nothing in science, physics, evolution to say that it wouldn't happen like that, that you wouldn't come across an alien species who are intelligent, who have a different way of communicating, that um, have to be in a different uh, atmosphere, yeah yeah the fact that they also have to live with this inside this medium Mm. and so that they can use their visual communication and i loved when you when she went into their thing and she was surrounded by this smoke that they live in all the time Mm. and it's like oh this is how we write because we live in an environment like this so it makes you think that their planet has this Mm. kind of atmosphere that means that their communication can be visual like that maybe sound doesn't travel maybe that's how they evolved to write in the smoke um can i just say something about the aliens that i just loved how inviting they were they were like come on in yeah they made it so easy they made the oxygen levels just for you and we're going to be behind this little screen Hi, yeah. and we're gonna make the gravity the way you like it, and the oxygen the way you like it, and it's just like here's the trapdoor, and yeah. I just think that the aliens seem really nice. And they were, and it was even like also there's only a certain amount of time you can be in this for, so like once that time is up, we're gonna gently slide you out so that like nothing happens to you. They're very caring, and it and yeah. I loved it. I loved it. And I also, I loved how I did enjoy as well when she was in their environment and you kind of saw more of them, how very kind of intimidating it was. 
but still gentle. You know, it was just like, it was just such a wonderful way to show us something completely new. Yeah, and it also just shows you how much, when you are using the medium of a screen to communicate, how much you're not getting. Mm. It's like, they're just these goofy yes. people. They're like, it's Abbott and Costello, these goofs. Yeah. <laughs> and then when she goes into their place, it's so much more spiritual. It's mystical than all of these people being like, burr, 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 burr. Yeah. <laughs> and like, cause all we had, they were showing us a screen. And like, this is just a visual, this is a communication thing. You it's know, maybe it's so much easier when someone's behind. Now. Yeah. Yeah. But, it's so much easier to just yeah. blow somebody up. They're behind a screen like that. Maybe. We, better than if you we actually do. were we, we've experienced talked about them. it. We've talked about it with like our with our uh, documentary miniseries. Um, how how much our our communication is behind a screen these days? You know, it's basically just here's I'm going to communicate by showing you what um, what I want to show you, and and that you will learn as much about me as I want to show you through this visual medium of like here's my here's a video here's a photograph here's a here's a bit of text on a screen this is as much of me as i am giving you and i can curate your wow. vision of me based on this another great dating metaphor yeah <laughs> i'll show you this incredibly limited version of me <laughs> and nothing else Okay. When you idealize me, I'm like, how dare you? <laughs> then the smoke will clear away and you'll see what a giant ass I am. <laughs> or a giant bull towering blob. <laughs> okay. Shall we get into the language then? Or rather, like, communication. Okay, I've got expectation versus reality, which is just so this I just want to talk about this for a little bit first, because there's a line right at the beginning where when they go to Louise to ask her to communicate or to ask her to translate the sounds that she's hearing and she is like, oh, I need to. Um, I can't remember what she says. She says like she needs more. Basically, she can't just like have this this uh, this like audio tape cassette player in front of her just playing the sound she's like i need more and his ignorance in the response of like you didn't need that with the farsi translations and it's like what are you talking about dude like do you understand what it what actual processes there are in research like and i'm talking just general research never mind linguistics here like how could you possibly expect somebody to be able to translate a language that they have never heard or has absolutely no basis in human language whatsoever from just hearing an audio file like i was just like the audacity of this fucking government official coming in and putting this level of expectation on her and then the rudeness with which he left acting like you know oh i'm gonna go to somebody else then because you can't do this for me i i liked the way that they depicted that though i liked the way that they showed him throughout the movie really just not understanding the process that was required in order to uh to get information about this language well they weren't going to be giving people just a tour of the aliens or what they were supposed to what what, 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 they, what they were going to do I guess they could have shown a video, but maybe they just didn't want to give her too much information mm. because it might be that's 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 revealing way too much unless you know that person's on board. So maybe that's all they could really do. Tell us what you know and 
Because, yeah, I mean, no, they I, are military. I appreciate that. So. I appreciate that. But it was the specific line of him saying, oh, you didn't need that with the Farsi translations. And it's like, because Farsi is a language that already exists and people yeah. fucking understand <laughs> and speak. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you realize these are aliens, right? They don't speak human. <laughs> By the way, because in the end, when she comes out, the sounds are just them being like, <laughs> <laughs> they're just like move. It's just the movement. It's just their like mm. organs. Yeah, it's not. It's not even a part of it. So, anyway, what I wanted to do was, in order to kind of really think about this movie, I thought we should talk about hieroglyphs for a minute, okay? Because being able to actually translate language without having any commonality or any understanding or basic understanding of it is something we can't even do with languages on Earth. Because you have to have a common frame of reference in order to decipher a language. Now, back in the day, it was impossible to decipher ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. There was no frame of reference to start from. Ultimately, it was the work of two people and the discovery of the Rosetta Stone that cracked it. Frida, the two people. Do you know who the two people are who have who actually like cracked the Rosetta, the Rosetta Stone and how? I don't remember. Okay, because I I remember reading about this, but like just didn't didn't register it like many many years ago when I first read about the Rosetta Stone and stuff like that. And now that I've gone back and I'm like, this is I love this. So the two people were uh, Jean Francois uh, Champollion, a linguist, and Thomas Young, as in Young's double slit polymath extraordinaire so we had a linguist and a scientist but wait hold up thomas young yeah like is it the two slit interferometer yeah i didn't how the fudge did i know that but i just love that so uh, the more i looked into it the more i felt like this this story is really kind of taking a lot of the elements of the story of cracking Egyptian hieroglyphs okay so basically like I said it was the work of both Thomas Young and Jean-Francois Champollion I don't know how to pronounce that properly I do apologize okay so the Rosetta Stone people who don't know what the Rosetta Stone is it's a slab that has an inscription carved on it in three languages Egyptian hieroglyphs ancient Greek and something called Demotic now ancient Greek was the only language that anyone could translate at the time. The other two were unknown. And this is important because they weren't entirely sure that the stone was the same text in three languages. Uh, now the stone was from the Ptolemaic period. And as they knew what the Greek part said, um, Young basically just started out by going, hey, let's see if we can find out which cartouche in the hieroglyphs depicts the name Ptolemy. Ptolemy? 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 I don't know which way you say that. We'll say Ptolemy. Now, it was assumed at the time that hieroglyphs were based purely on images. So the language was like pictures. However, it was found out... However, over time they found that some of the images were actually depicting sounds. Now, what happened was they found an obelisk that was inscribed in both Greek and hieroglyphs with the names of Ptolemy and Cleopatra. So because they had found this and because um, Young had already done some work in trying to identify some parts of the hieroglyphs that he thought represented Ptolemy, Champollion was then able to confirm the cartouche in the hieroglyphs for the name Ptolemy. Um, And then basically 
using the uh, cartouche from the obelisk for Cleopatra, they were also able to work out what other parts of it were sounds and images. So like which parts of the cartouche for Ptolemy were using, uh, were being used to form sounds. Because he reasoned that a foreign name that you don't know, you're not going to have an actual hieroglyph for that name. So the way that you're going to write it is phonetically. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, so so they kind of basically just thought, well, they're not going to have a hieroglyph specifically for the name Ptolemy. So if the name Ptolemy is in here, then it has to be sounded out. So they must be using other um, cartouches to form a sound. And then they can use those, find those cartouches within it and then start to kind of form an understanding of, of what it's saying because they had the ancient Greek translation. So they knew the... They knew what it was, what the hieroglyphs were trying to say in Greek, basically. So what they figured out from all of this is that hieroglyphs are actually made up of three types. There's um, ideograms, ideograms, ideograms. Uh, so they're images. So things like the scarab beetle. And then they're also made up of phonograms, which makes up most of the language, actually. Uh, so making it like sounding out words. And then it's also made up of something called determinatives. And this is what conveys the sense of the word. So a name might be written using phonograms, which are kind of like the consonants for like our language. And then a determinative would indicate to you that you're referring to a man. So that's how they would find the name Ptolemy um, within it. So decoding hieroglyphs took many, 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 many years and a lot of people working on it. Uh, but they were able to do that because they had a reference point, something to help create a link between a language that they knew and something entirely different. Um, and this is what Dr. Banks does in the movie. She tries to create a common reference by bringing the whiteboard in and using it to identify the motion or the objects to start to build a foundation to understand the language through written word rather than trying to understand things audio, um, orally, because it's going to be easier to decode the language by looking at, at what, what's being written versus trying to hear the sounds and make connections to them. But that, of course, takes time. How do you feel about this? I think it's amazing because the fact is that you don't know how a language is going to work. And so the fact that you have to translate something not knowing how the rules are going to be different from ours and how they're going to be similar I guess because there are going to be universal things mm. it's crazy that they're able they were able to do that and it does mirror it made it reminds me of her being like it could it's like that curly thing could be the same but it's just indicating this the general sense or the intention. Yes. Maybe it's a question. Maybe it's what it's referring to. Maybe it's the same idea, but it's referring to me or a pronoun or something like that. Um, yeah. It's very interesting. But exactly, that's the thing. And it and, and that's what's so fascinating about the movie is like just, just the detail that they went into in, in showing us these. This like you're given this visual language, these logograms as they're called in the movie. And you're having to try to determine not just what whether they're con whether this logogram is conveying a sentence, an intention, whether it's conveying um, sounds, 
or and and what the what the sense of it all means like how how do you how do you combine everything together the complication in all of that and the amount of time it would take to be able to decode something like this when we have absolutely no way whatsoever to um to reference it so she had to create a reference for it she had to begin to try to build something and and it makes sense that you would do that as well because you would assume that an intelligent species who is trying to communicate would recognize what she's doing would be able to go okay you know this this we're we're starting to find yes. some common ground to communicate it so you know because um, the aliens would recognize we have to tell them this but we know that our language and their language is going to be different so the aliens would actually be kind of more ready than us to learn how to communicate because they know what they're trying to do we yeah. don't know that they were trying to communicate something so the, you're right like if they were intelligent they would be kind of along for the ride and just just as an aside the fact that this movie shows us something which nobody unless they are in that area would ever encounter linguistics mm-hmm. it, it, it like what a gift you know that it exposes people to like this entire other way of seeing the world what a yeah. cool thing it's amazing it's so beautiful and I really like it kind of this brings us to her uh, her science lecture, her whiteboard moment, which but was done very, very well. Like you said, subtly, it wasn't it wasn't over the top. It wasn't it, it had a very clear. I, I did that actually. Moment. It was truly 30 seconds, though. It wasn't 30 yeah. seconds. It wasn't. There's the bell. But it yeah. really was 30 seconds movie lecture. Still, <laughs> I did put it as a trope, though. Yeah. But but it. it it was a very, it was an important moment, I think, particularly for those of us who don't really think about linguistics or think about language in that way, where, you know, she just writes up and she's like, okay, so the question, what is your purpose on earth? And then going through the stages of the structure of language in order to be able to build to asking that question. Because, yeah, the, the expectation that you could just ask somebody that question immediately who speaks a language completely alien to you and expect to get a response that you could then understand is wild. You have to go through the stages. You have to build that understanding and that acknowledgement between each other to be, oh, hello. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Somebody sending me sunglasses on the, on the, on the video. <laughs> um, so <laughs> Frida's like, what is happening? So yeah. So I just, I just think that that's a really kind of a cool thing. And I particularly like the part as well about how she's the purpose of not just trying to understand and decode all of this is also to recognize how easy it is for us to create confusion with language. Uh, that that point that she there's two points that she brings up with it where how it would be very easy for them to misunderstand tool and weapon and also how she says like if all I gave you was a hammer everything to you then is a nail and it's very interesting to look at how that all works to look at how um language and decoding like we do that even just when we speak english to each other we can confuse our intentions so imagine trying to do that with something completely new yeah like the mahjong thing she's saying the chinese using mahjong mahjong is all about war all those words so if that's all they're giving them 
that they're only going to interpret things as 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 war yeah it's fascinating there was another point that they made about the language too that I thought was really interesting where uh, there's a moment where Ian Donnelly says they can't follow our algebra but can follow complex things and this actually makes complete sense because there are foundational truths to our universe that are more complicated than the way that we structure or represent math. Now, so the laws of physics are universal, but the way we describe them might not be. Like there's nothing to say that an alien race would develop math in the same way that we have. They might have the same foundational, like universal understanding of the laws of how things work, but they might not use algebra to represent something. So they might not be able to follow algebra, whereas if you're kind of going like, oh, hydrogen atom or cesium atom oscillations, they'd be like, yeah, cool. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I felt like when I heard that line, I, I had a sense that there was a lot more that you could be interpreted from that line than they had at the field. They just dropped it. And I was like, I'm sure there's a, like a deep truth to that. There really is. About how dumb algebra is and why do we even need it? <laughs> I'm just joking. I love algebra. Algebra's great. But I understand a lot of people are just like, why? Yeah. <laughs> I, I just, I find it like interesting because they're, they're, we really do have this visual that like when, when we talk about, um, about communicating with, like communicating with uh, alien species or, you know, yeah, there's no other word. There's no other words for that. We do have this visual of what we think would happen and how we think and, and and that like, you know, oh, they would have the same ideas as us in forming kind of language and basis or science and physics and things like that. And it's like some of that is true, but some of that is very simplified. And it was only kind of when, you know, when you really think about it and you really acknowledge like that, sure, math. We, we talk about math being like the language of the universe. We talk about it being universal. And that's true to a certain degree, but that doesn't mean that it would be represented in the same way and that you would be able to easily decode somebody else's representation of math or physics or science. Um, we would be able to use it as a common reference. And that's why on things like the Golden Record that was sent out on Voyager Probe, they put things on there like the... Um, I think they put the, I think it's the transition line for a hydrogen atom because hydrogen is the most common element in the universe. And, you know, there's things like that where you go, okay, well, if we put that down or put like reference points between pulsars, there are things that people would like some, another civilization who is out there exploring, looking at the universe, there are things that they would be able to recognize. And you can use that then as some sort of commonality to develop an understanding of language. Um, but yeah, I just found that a really interesting point to be like, you, they could understand things that are very, very complicated and not understand the simple things. Yep. Okay. So shall we move on? Yep. Okay. So when we do learn about their language, it's described as non-linear orthography, meaning that the written language is circular. It doesn't follow from cause to effect. In essence, the heptapods, for them, time has no direction. And the more Louise learns about their language, the more her experience of time changes. And this brings us to the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. 
Uh, Sapir Whorf is also called Linguistic Relativity, which I really enjoy. I don't know why. I just like it. I think it sounds great. Um, it comes from Edward Sapir and Benjamin Whorf. And basically what it says is that how you perceive and experience the world around you is shaped by the structure of the language that you use. Now, it's a controversial theory. There's no real evidence that this actually happens, at least like not on a large scale um, of the movie. Uh, not to the level of like rewiring your brain but the idea um based around like how you view the world in terms of your language i think is i think the reason it's controversial is because on a smaller scale i think it's something that a lot of people would probably agree with but rewiring your brain isn't something that's going to happen so the heptapods use a language that is devoid of direction of time and that she asks at one point is this how they think which leads to wibbly wobbly timey wimey for Louise. Uh, what I found really interesting about I, this. Huh? Can yeah. I just interject? Do you think that's a semantic thing? Like, because when they were saying that the, the sentences don't have any time in it, is that in the sense that we have beginning, middle, end sentence, and it just has the words are just like blah, 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 and then there's no order to them? And so isn't that just a semantic definition of the word time? But they're saying there's no time as in beginning, middle, end. Therefore, they have no sense of time. That must be because they have no sense of time or... Like, I just thought, is, was that just semantics? Oh, well, I don't know. But I mean, like, the whole point is that we lead to the point where we lead to... The movie leads to a rewiring of her brain through her use of their language. And through that, she stops seeing time as a linear thing. She stops seeing time as moving in, in one direction. And she starts experiencing um, all the events, basically, at the same time, I guess, in some sort of way. Or just not having any, you know, that's why she's able to get the information she needs from the general. Um, or, like, later on. Or, like, sorry. So that's why she's able to get the information from the general about his personal phone number and the details about his wife's last words in the future. Because it's all happening in like a circle. Yeah, the whole thing's sort of there's just no, happening. Yeah, everything is kind of just simultaneous for her, I guess, in some sort yeah. of way. Um, it's not, like it's not clear to me whether that sort of... remains with her always or not. And it's not clear to me as to whether the intention is that that's what's going to happen to all of humanity. We'll talk about that in a second. I do want to pick out something that I did find interesting when I was trying to look at the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis and, and like um, uh, what that could mean. Because like I said, it is controversial in terms of this, this general idea that it would have such a massive effect on you. But what I found interesting and something I didn't know is that for English speakers, we tend to view time as running left to right. I've never thought about this, but when I do think about it, yeah, absolutely, in my brain, time goes left to right. For Chinese speakers, it goes top to bottom. What do you, when you think about time? I think about uh, that. A forward arrow out of my chest. A <laughs> 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 forward arrow sticking from my chest. That is literally what I think about. Jesus Just Christ. me. <laughs> I uh, I just see time just going like an arrow. <sighs> yeah, swinging past me. 
but yeah, I just I just thought that was interesting. I was like, you know, what, do, like so yeah, so Chinese um, speakers will view tend to view top to bottom. Yeah. Do like, you know really cool. that my son he learned he learns both English and Hebrew in school, right? Mm-hmm. And they they one's from right to left, one's from left to right. And you see the way he like when he does birthday uh, cards and stuff like that. He starts it the wrong way, and then and then he'll be like, "Shit!" <laughs> like then he realized that the card, the opening of the card, he's doing it on the wrong side. Oh. And I'm like, it's because you're learning those two languages at once, and so yeah. you constantly get confused about which is the beginning, what's the middle, what's the end. Yeah. Especially with books, cards, because they're both happening at once. It's actually is confusing, and it does change the way you see directions of things. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the time thing is so abstract, so I don't really have. But uh, for me, it's a forward arrow. But yeah, <laughs> I, I, I wonder. But I do see that in practically in ways it, it, he does get confused between where start and where's the finish, based on those two languages. That's really interesting because so so what's your idea around lang? Like, let's talk about what how you feel about the Sapper Wharf thing and this idea about language for a moment. Like, how do you feel that the language that you speak shapes the way that you view the world or the way that you participate in the world? I'm not talking on a rewiring brain level, but like, do you, do you think that it it's different for different different language speakers? Yeah, I do. I think that I, I yes, I really think that the function of languages totally it changes things because even in little things, if I think think about the two languages I'm most familiar with, which is Hebrew and English, and the way that questions are asked, the way that things are asked of each other is so different that often we misinterpret things as rude because it's just the structure of the language. English has a lot of words, man. We say a lot, uh, but in Hebrew, it would directly translate as "give me this." Yeah. If if I said give me this, it'd be rude. And so you say Tedley is but but it's it's the way that you say it that makes it. But English we just don't really have that. We're very we have the we're polite and we use a lot of words say please, if you might, da da da. And so but with there's just less words and so if you don't understand the the context or the way something's delivered then you misinterpret things around each other and you misunderstand it that's more to do with definitions but i do think that there that's one example of how sensibilities come out with a language and how it can change the way that you see things yeah i agree i think for sure i agree with you because like i think when we when we take we we take it from two different perspectives so i'm just gonna say this now because i've seen a couple of things in the chat right so okay so first of all just to clarify sapir wharf in terms of uh learning a new language resulting in a rewiring of your brain so that you view the world in an entirely different way um is is not it like that there is absolutely no scientific basis for that there's absolutely no proof or evidence to say that that is something that would actually happen so what i'm talking about in this respect to sapir wharf is i'm just talking about and we're not talking about having a different cultural way of interacting with people we're talking about a different um, way of thinking that does your brain do you think about things differently when you are speaking um, in one language versus when you have learned a different language and that's that's what you're sorry that's I'm just there's just a couple of people in the comments that yeah, I misunderstood I what we're talking about so I completely <sighs> agree with you what you're saying about Hebrew because this is this is what I feel as well because I I honestly do believe 
that the structure and the poetry of the Irish language is very, very different to English language. And when I think when I think as an English speaker and I think in English and I think about like what I need to say or what I need to do or how I, you know, how I need to behave. It's very, very different than when you think about the world from the perspective of Irish, because I don't know. I don't know how to describe it to me. Like Irish is more poetic. It's more earthy. It's, um, you know, it's more, uh, it's more not descriptive. Um, what's the word? Oh my God. Like when, when you say things, it's, as you said, like Hebrew is more direct and Irish is more, it's not that it's indirect in terms of the politeness of English, but it's more like, you know, when, when you put a curse on someone, if you say in Irish, if you say in English, like, oh, I'm putting a curse on you in Irish, it's like, oh, it becomes this whole big production about the devil must eat your cat and then this is that and, the, and then that's, you know, it's like, so I do believe that how you view and interact with the world around you is shaped by how you are thinking um, and what language you're thinking yeah. in. And I think it's the same when you're learning a language because I remember my Spanish teacher used to kind of, he used to always correct us whenever we would say, oh, it's like this English word. He would be like, no, it's not. It's not like that English word. It is not the same thing as that English word. It has a different feel to it. You have to feel the language. You have to feel what the intention of the word in Spanish is instead of just trying to equate it to something in English. And that really stuck with me. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I really do. I really do believe it. I think it's really cool. Uh, well, it's very hard to separate all these things from culture. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. Like, how can you separate a people's language from the culture, from the identity? And what, what, what culture comes out because of the language? What expressions of the language come out through the culture? I'm yeah. not really sure. But I, I think also about Yiddish, when you say you have to feel the intention of the word. So many words in Yiddish you cannot possibly give a direct translation it just doesn't work and it's impossible but it's very visceral it's a very visceral mm -hmm. language and it does change the way you think and feel when you use that language but I don't know how much of that comes out because of the way the Jewish people are incredibly sort of visceral and yeah. you know the guttural sounds and it's like uh, I'm not sure what came what comes bit of a chicken and egg situation don't you think yeah, Abby? I suppose we are thinking about it very much in the perspective of, of culturally viewing the world rather than, you know, do, does it change your interaction with the world, I guess, maybe is more what the Sapir Wharf thing is about, more so. I don't know. I find it interesting. I think that we do definitely approach things differently when we, when we approach things from a different... But uh, you're sure. so right, like trying to separate language and culture is, is not something that you can actually really do. <laughs> yeah, well, well, we'll just 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 take the aliens for a minute. Like if you did have that view on time, your culture would absolutely be border like be made around that your yeah. reality and your language would reflect your reality. So if a language is one, one expression of your who you are, then I guess they all sort of go hand in hand that it comes from your reality. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah. Also, and it's funny that somebody is saying that Finnish saying that Finnish pronouns don't differentiate by gender. Therefore, maybe that has connected to the to the fact that they have less of a problem with with gender equality. So that changes the way the Finnish people feel about genders being different because their language they they don't have pronouns. That's really language interesting. Language is incredibly important. It's incredibly important because it, yeah. it's it, it's very important. And language can be both descriptive and prescriptive, right? So you can, language can be 
about what things mean, but it, it, language also comes from how it's used. So it's like two ways of language. Language could either be like, because the dictionary says it means this, so I use it as this. But if something is used enough to mean something, then that becomes the meaning and that's how it's prescribed. So it can come from the way we think is how yeah. the language can evolve too. So um, it is fascinating. If I, if I pull it away from culturally then for a minute, how do you feel about the concept yeah. of science as a language? physics and math as a language do you view it as a language yep i yeah. think in numbers yeah i view like I this is something i say to people constantly who ask me to explain like teach them quantum physics and explain quantum physics to them i'm like quantum physics is a language like if you want to learn quantum physics you have to learn a language you have to learn the structure of that language you have to learn what each term means how it interacts what terms go together what terms don't go together um yeah i, I agree yeah. with you and i think that education is like um an evolution Dude, as well and you're so right yeah thank you i love hearing i'm right i'm thinking about einsteinian notation yeah this is the expression of the higher dimensions I think about relativity. In order to talk, go from special relativity to general relativity, we have to be thinking in, in high dimensions, and we can't we can't think in higher dimensions if we use the language. Therefore, we bring in a new language that you must learn, and the language is the theory. Yeah, the notation is quantum theory. You know, yeah. like basically, once you get to understand the language, you understand the theory, and that's that's how that's how it is in quantum mechanics. You're so right. Like that yeah. is a really now now that we're speaking our language. Yes. I now start to relate because for me, I don't know if I naturally think in quantities, but I view everything as quantities, right? Or it's because I study science and maths for so long that I that I just quantify everything and it completely changes the way I think. I analyze things in terms of their numbers all the time. And I don't know if it's because I'm so that's my language. And so that's how I think. Or have I always thought that way and and, and that's why I'm good at it. I'm not sure, but I think one hundred percent the way I think is completely changed by my immersion in mathematics yeah there's no question no i agree with you that that was that that is my kind of main support for this idea of the sapper wharf hypothesis because i do believe that since i went to university studied physics and have immersed myself into this world of physics it has shaped how i view and interact with the world absolutely has shaped because i am now existing and speaking within the language of science and when you think about math and think about quantum physics, it's something that I'm constantly trying to communicate to people where people get quite frustrated. They're like, oh, but, you know, why can't you explain it to me simply? And it's like you're essentially asking me to teach you Egyptian hieroglyphs without you understanding any without you having like without you understanding anything about the structure of how hieroglyphs work. Like, you know, I can, it can teach you, but you have to learn, you have to get that common reference and you have to start connecting the words and you have to start learning that language because quantum physics isn't, oh, here's the direct translation into English for you. And now you can understand everything because you can just read the quantum physics books translated into English. It's like, no, you, you have to learn the language. You want to speak that language. You've got to learn that language. And that takes, that takes time. And and it will change your view yeah. on how you, it will change how you view and see the world around you as soon as you learn it. 
<gasps> this movie's and all about quantum it's physics. Scientific... <laughs> this, <laughs> well, once we realize we have a language, we got excited. But what, uh, if if the scientific method is the language for math for science, once you once you learn the scientific method, you apply it to your thinking. Hmm. And so that's why having a scientific thinking is the way that you filter information of the world around you and the way you evaluate information, you start applying that. Yeah. Whereas if you're not immersed in science, you don't have the language to start explaining why something is baloney or not. Yeah. So it's like, that's, that's, that's the more science way that you can look at that. <laughs> it, it is the direct connection to uh, the people who talk to me about quantum healing. It is the direct connection to the people who who disagree, who come to me and say, oh, but quantum physics says this. And it's like, no, because you don't actually speak quantum physics. If you think the quantum physics says the quantum healing is a thing, then you don't speak quantum physics. And if you go and you learn the language of quantum physics, then you will learn that it doesn't say that. And it will change your view and it will change how you see the world. And you will not believe that quantum healing is a thing. Uh, that's that's kind of the best I can do about it, basically. <laughs> Did so, we yeah. really have to bring quantum healing into this? I know, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, shall we shall we end it there then? Shall we move move out of our discussion? Because the movie ends with her newfound perception of time and the implication that all humans will eventually learn to think this way due to the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. As to whether that's something that is a clear outcome of the movie, I'm not so sure. But I do find it very moving. Um, I find the ending of this movie very emotional. And I really enjoy one of her one of her final lines where she says, despite knowing the journey and where it leads, I embrace it. And I think that we do all need to embrace the journey. It's really hard. I know, but do it. Embrace it's hard to do that, but... <laughs> so, but yeah, the movie really ends beautifully. Yeah. Do you have any other comments you want to make about the movie um, before we go into our last our last bit? Um, are you still there? Oh, I love the bit when they go. They're not leaving. They're just hovering higher, oh, yeah. and the guy's like, "Why does that feel worse?" <laughs> like well you sent them up there <laughs> you made it happen i love that bit and then i have something that's going to be with the final verdict yeah i wonder if we're both uh, okay so cool um let's go into our what the fuck moment then what the what the what the fuck all right frida what is your what the fuck do you have I'm sorry, but it is the ge general shank, that thing. Because I felt the movie was like so deliberate. It was like, ooh. And then suddenly I was in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, in my view. It was like, you called me. I did. You gave me this number. This number. This number. This number. This number. And then I said this. You said what? I said this. My wife said this. My wife said this. Your wife said this. She said what? She said this. You called me. I did. I did. I did. Oh, my God. I did it. It's done. It's done. It's done. I was like, all of a sudden. It was supposed to show you that time is wibbly wobbly. <laughs> but it reminded me of the, the climax of Bill and Ted's excellent yeah. adventure. I put the watch here. Yeah. <laughs> or whatever the key oh, yeah. is. <laughs> Very good. 
Very good. Very true. Um, I'm time traveled out. Yes, I know. I know. I didn't like, I mean, you know, I just, I had forgotten all about this part of the movie and then I started watching it and I was like, oh fuck, how did I manage to do that? More time travel. <laughs> well, we're done now for a while, hopefully. <laughs> um, what about you? So yeah, my what the fuck was like, just how, like, how, I mean, I don't like, I do apologize to our American listeners. Please don't take offense. But I was like, it is so fucking American. We don't understand it. Let's bomb it. And I was like, that that's about right for how it would go with us. Like if we had this massively intelligent species have come here to give us information to help us in the future, some idiots would fuck it up for everyone by being like, oh, oh, it's scary and different. Bomb it, bomb it. It just, it just was so frustrating. It just really, 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 really annoyed me. Yeah, and I have definitely a comment about that in the final verdicts. Okay, cool. All right, well then, <laughs> final verdicts. <laughs> Did the movie pass the Sam's test? I don't. Yeah. Yeah, I don't feel like it's maybe. I don't feel She's like the only it, um, woman like anywhere. <laughs> I I don't feel like it. It's uh, it's required here. I feel like this is one of the movies where yeah, it's, it's not a- really like the Sam's test isn't really there. It's very few characters. Um, it's very much her story. And yeah, I mean, like you've got three main characters. Really, you've got two main characters and then like a sort of supporting character. I don't, yeah, it just doesn't doesn't really matter. I don't think. There does happen to be no other men anywhere. Anywhere, by the way. Men. But I think it works really well. Because, you know, they blow it up. They blow shit up, right? Yeah. And I feel like they only let they let the woman in. They were, the aliens were like, can we just get the woman? Yeah. <laughs> because all of you guys suck. <laughs> we'll take her. That's what I felt like when she walked in. Me and my friend were like, they want only the lady. Yeah. Sensible woman has and walked into the room. <laughs> the lady who's like... <gasps> I love you, aliens. Yeah. <laughs> because it's amazing. <laughs> and all the guys were like, no, they're going to find us and destroy us. And yeah. um, I felt like it worked, actually, that she was the only lady, to be honest. I liked okay. that because it, it, it put their little bit, the fact that they uh, isolated her from the rest of them was powerful to me because she was the only woman. Okay. And she was more, like, her communication was so much better because, as we know... Women are much better at communicating than men and are willing to understand each other more. Yes. And enjoy it. Yeah, I, th- I didn't think about it from that perspective, actually. You're so right. It's like, you know, she was the one who was trying to communicate. Her and, her and Ian, to be fair, but like him as a scientist, more like his curiosity and her actual desire to communicate accurately, like to create a connecting link and to understand and you know have no miscommunication and have no misunderstandings and then like you've got the um the general i can't remember his name forrest whitaker's character who's just like how dare you make progress with words (laughs) it's like come on dude um she wanted everyone to go to therapy she was like that she needed counseling (laughs) she was trying to drag everyone to group counseling all right. Okay. So, did it pass the science? I mean, yeah. I don't see any reason yeah. not to. Thank you. And uh, final verdict. 
You're five. Hey, check you out. Amazing science, beautiful film. I don't know what else we want. I know. I'm a 4.8. I'm not sure why it's just the number that I feel. I just go with what I feel. I feel a 4.8. It's because you're a woman. Maybe because I want to know if the end of the movie was intended that um, everyone would eventually speak the language of the heptopods and view time in the same way. And did she continue to view time like that? I don't know. It's interesting. She was speaking the language, so she was immersed in it. Yeah. But she's, maybe she stops being immersed in it. She doesn't have anyone to talk to yeah. the language with. <laughs> maybe then she stops. Maybe. Okay, so that is Arrival. Um, I'm very happy that we finally did it. It's been on the list since, well, day one, really. three, Nearly three years ago now. So we've finally done Arrival. Frida, what is our next movie? Oh, we're on a break now. Sorry, so we're on a break now for three weeks. And then we kick back with the start of a new cycle. And Frida, what is the start of our new cycle going to be? We got to start off with a big popular movie that everybody loves to kick off the next cycle, and that is E.T. <gasps> Finally. Finally. I knew you were going to be the one to pick it, so it's been, yeah. We haven't done We're on that. a break. Yeah, so. so that's good. Okay, cool. Yay, we're finally going to do E.T. And we stayed on schedule, which means we can actually have a break, although we have a few minis. Yeah, we've still we got some to stuff just to just quickly record. Yeah. I mean, but we can knock it out in one session, I reckon, yeah. and then we can have a nice break. Yeah, we, Maybe we, next week. We still have two main episodes to record, Frida. Oh, for the next set. Yeah. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <sighs> but by the time this episode comes out, we will have been on schedule. That's true. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Woo! well, we can sort this out right. offline. Yeah. Okay, Battle cool, thank that. you so much. Oh, yeah, so sorry, so next movie. Uh, oh, yeah, so we're on a break now for a couple of weeks, then we'll be back with a new cycle, new mini-series, and kicking us all off with E.T. Phone Home. Uh, if you'd like to join us then, please do. Um, give us a rating. We keep saying it, like, uh, you follow us, so please. Uh, I, I don't know, like, I know it depends on what you're listening on, but if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and follow us on our social media accounts, which is Instagram and um, TikTok, both Science at the Movies. And let us know what movies you want us to uh, listen to. Um, listen to, what? Talk about. Ha! <laughs> Lol. Uh, yeah, if you've got if you've got any recommendations or any movies that you want us to cover that we haven't covered yet, then let us know. Uh, thanks for hanging out with us, and we will be back after our break. Bye bye. Bye. We should have learned how to say bye in heptapod. <laughs>